Another great show on tap for you today in our second hour of conversation with one of the 21 most influential black folk in technology, according to USA Today, Stacy Spikes, about what happens when power, technology, and race intersect in the entertainment industry. We'll talk with Spikes about facing adversity, defying stereotypes, and shattering glass ceilings. Should be a great conversation once we get to hour two. In our third hour today, Two conversations on the top side of our three, a chat with the Tony and Peabody award-winning co-founder of Deaf Poetry Dram, Jam that is, and the founder of the Genius is Common Movement, Bruce George. On the B side of our three, a conversation with the Poet Laureate of San Francisco, Tongo Ison Martin, about the emboldened neo-Confederate wave of violence in this country and honoring the legacy of the renowned poet, Diane DePrima. But we commence today's show in dialogue with the president of Alliance for Justice, Rakeem Brooks, about whether the state of our freedom is once again tied to our courts, and if so, what that means in this present moment of consequential decisions by a rapidly uh, conservative Supreme Court. I am pleased to welcome Rakeem Brooks to this program. Rakeem, how are you today, sir? I'm doing just fine, Tavis. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you on the program. Let me let me start with a with a broad question. We can narrow our ways. We move through this hour. I'm glad we have the hour. A lot to lot to talk about um, uh, in this regard. Um, but for situ- sure. situate for me historically. I'm talking now about black folk in the courts, uh, and we know that there was a time. <laughs> he laughs. He laughs already. I ain't got my question on. He's already laughing. Uh, right. <laughs> there there was a time historically when we. We're at a place where we felt there was no place else to go for reprieve but to our U.S. court system. Um, that's, this, that's part of our history, obviously. And I'm wondering if I can commence our conversation with you situating for us this present moment vis-a-vis black folk and the courts. Sure, sure. Well, the reason I laughed is uh, it was good of you to say that there was a time where we thought our only reprieve was in the courts because, of course, our forebearers, going back to Dred Scott, did not feel that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in yep. fact, yep. Uh, you know, in the 19th century, uh, the courts were really the enemy of civil rights. Uh, they were firmly in the hold of either the Confederacy or then the former Confederacy um, and soon to be Jim Crow South. Uh, but as you say, in the 1950s, uh, we found ourselves with the Warren Court and Brown mm-hmm. versus Board of Education and eventually uh, Loving versus Virginia and any number of other cases that affirm the rights of black people to be free uh, in this country and um, stand uh, equally with uh, every other citizen. Uh, in the past 70 years, we basically have taken slow but steady steps backwards from the promise uh, of that generation. Um, So that the current court, the Roberts Court, is probably the most conservative court in at least a century. Uh, I hesitate to say the most conservative court of all time because I'm going to leave that to the Dred Scott Court. Mm -hmm. But uh, with with regard to black folks, um, John Roberts, uh, what most people don't know is that this is a crusade that he has been on since the 1980s when he was in the Reagan and Bush uh, Justice Department. He has never felt that what he calls racial preferences, racial set-asides, et cetera, were constitutional. Uh, and in fact, his mentor, uh, Chief Justice William Rehnquist, whom he clerked, uh, actually was one of the only clerks to suggest to his justice that Brown versus Board of Education uh, or that Plessy v. Ferguson not be overturned. I mean, this is how far back <laughs> this this goes. And so Uh, Our present moment is really a perilous one, as you described at the outset, because we have real enemies of uh, racial progress. I mean, they have their own view of racial progress, but certainly it's not one that you or I would share. 
um, we have real enemies situated on the highest court in the land. Yeah. Um, when you mentioned a moment ago, and uh, you laughed when I was saying something, I laughed when you were saying something. I just didn't laugh out loud, mm-hmm. but I was laughing here <laughs> internally in the studio. Now I'm laughing out loud uh, because I heard you say that you don't want to call this present court the most conservative court in American history. You'll leave that to the court that made the Dred Scott decision. I laughed in part because they on their way there. If they ain't there yet, they on their way right. to being the most conservative court uh, in, uh, in in a long time. So how close are they is my question. How close are they to being as bad uh, as the court that, that passed down the Dred Scott decision? Oh, I you know, I don't think anybody can get anywhere near what Roger Taney did. I mean, he basically said that black folks had um, no constitutional protection that they were not citizens they were never we were never considered to be citizens by the founders in any way and uh historically that just wasn't accurate there were of course slave states and there was of course a compromise to permit slavery to continue to exist but there were free black people in the north some of whom voted some of whom even voted to adopt the constitution and so that was just a outright lie now the present court also engages in plenty of lying uh, it reconstructs the history of brown versus board of education to somehow be about colorblindness uh, and not about fundamentally about integration um and so they're certainly uh doing their best to run up <laughs> run mm-hmm. up to that legacy but they but they'll never arrive it, it's just such an awful period in our history but that shouldn't um the fact that they're not exactly the same should not somehow uh, lead us to let our guard down, because what they really are doing is unwinding all the progress that was made legally over the last 70 years. And for those of us who benefited from affirmative action, which is basic, I mean, basically every member of society in truth, but I'm just going to limit it to black folks at sure. the moment. Those of us who benefited from affirmative action, whose parents benefited from affirmative action and so forth, uh, where it gave us um, an opportunity to show our stuff right on on the grand stage of some of the best universities and then to achieve sure. we can expect greater ever greater hostility to our presence but, on uh, university campuses because of this when we come forward I, I promise i'll come to this issue of affirmative action and give you uh, more time to sort of unpack that uh, i'm a huge fan of alliance for justice and therefore a fan of rakeem brooks and yet i want to challenge him when we come forward on his notion that this supreme court will never get there that is to say being as conservative as the the uh, the court that handed down uh, Dred Scott. I'm not so sure. We'll talk about it when we come forward on Tavis today. Uh, and um, we're talking about the ways in which um, our court system um, is uh, not about the business these days, uh, as if it has been any time recently, uh, advancing uh, the kind of agenda that is not antithetical to the best interest of our people, uh, and more expressly, what we can do about it. We're talking about whether or not the fate of our freedom Uh, in the days to come is tied to our courts and if so what does that mean um so before we before that break uh rakeem had made the point uh, in answer to a a question i posed about how conservative this court really is and whether or not they are as bad as the the taney court that handed us down handed down rather the dred scott decision he said moments ago in case you've just tuned in that he uh doesn't think this court is as bad not the most conservative court in the history of this country because uh he would leave that again, to the court that handed down the Dred Scott decision. I want to push back on that. They may not <clears throat> they may not be there now, Rakeem. I'd put it this way. Um, they got chalk on their shoes, even, even if they ain't stepped across the line <laughs> just yet. They're, they're, they're getting awfully close. And I, and I raised that because, and I've said this before, some years ago um, um, I was on a, uh, some national uh, program, 
And, and I made mm -hmm. the point that if we ain't careful in this country, um, we may very well find ourselves pushing back on uh, Supreme Court decisions and legislation uh, that once again uh, wants to characterize us as three-fifths of a person. And I meant that mm -hmm. sincerely. I wasn't saying it jokingly. I wasn't, say, I wasn't trying to be hyperbolic. I uh, wasn't being outrageous. I, I, I meant that because we're on a slippery slope. And I don't think we can ever assume that the slippery slope we're on won't slide us right into hell. You look at what yeah. you look at what Ron DeSantis and others are doing on banning books. I mean, you you know history. You're a student of history. You know how this stuff begins. Uh, and every mm -hmm. empire, uh, my study of history suggests to me that every empire in the history of the world eventually has its comeuppance. Every empire in the history of the world eventually has its reckoning. Uh, and when you start to see these kinds of things happening, people banning books and you've got a would be dictator, essentially, who wants to be president once again, named Donald Trump. Mm. You see all this stuff happening. Supreme Court making more and more conservative decisions that are completely out of step and out of line with everyday uh, people in this country. I'm not so sure it's a foregone conclusion that they will never get there as outrageous as it seems. That's my case. Disabuse me of that notion. Well, it's it's well informed, Tavis. So I don't want to disabuse you of it. I'll just challenge okay. um, maybe some some of the presumptions, which is just to say, if we get there, it won't be the court that does it. Okay. I guess is my point. Fair enough. Uh, it will be political society as a whole that's done it. That we've empowered the most radical elements of our society and given them control of the levers, and as a consequence, we'll all suffer. That's really really the point that I'm making. This current court, you're not wrong. Is definitely it has chalk on issues. The case. Um, one case, this term 303 Creative, which was about the right of uh, queer people uh, to receive services without discrimination, is eerily similar to the civil rights cases of the late 1800s. For folks who don't know, those cases basically the court ruled that the 13th and 14th Amendments didn't empower Congress to outlaw racial discrimination by private individuals, only the state. Mm -hmm. And the court recently in this 303 Creative case basically said, well, private individuals can discriminate because they have First Amendment rights against against uh, LGBTQ folks. They have uh, First Amendment rights that should be protected. And a lot of us said, well, what about the folks who don't want to serve black people? <laughs> Isn't that the same case? How is that in any way different and so i so i'm with you don't don't mishear me in thinking that this court is supremely radical that is definitely trying to take us to a place we don't want to go but i think it's ultimately the the other political branches uh that being the congress and the presidency that are the biggest threats to our freedoms um this current court is just an enabler mm -hmm. in many ways now that's a terrible thing yeah <laughs> we should again i don't want to minimize it um but for instance there was a case this term where they basically could have empowered all these rabid state legislatures that are gerrymandered and controlled by Republicans. And they chose not to do that um, for now. Now, there may come a day where they change their minds, and that's sort of what you're warning us about. So I always think it's worth having a warning, right? I disagree today, but have me back on the show, and I'll be like, Tavis, you were right. <laughs> Two years later, I was, I was too optimistic about what these people would or wouldn't do. No, I, I hope to never have you on to have that conversation, because uh, <laughs> frankly, if we get if it gets that bad, I won't have a radio show to have you back on. Uh, right, they, they, right. Will, they will shut down all Negroes on media. Uh, that's the first thing they do, right? 
right? Uh, <laughs> they they take the microphones away from us, so that that ain't gonna happen. Uh, that's, Don't worry, learn that, Spanish. We'll, we'll broadcast from abroad. There you go. There you go. That said, um, take me back seventy years ago. You made the point that we can sort of earmark um, this U-turn, as it were, uh, following the Warren Court uh, seventy years ago, uh, that now finds us where we are. Uh, so take me back, you know, seven decades ago, and tell me what was happening and how you think we got to where we are now. Okay, I'm going to try to be brief. I know we have an hour, but people don't want to listen to me for that long. So, uh, okay, what happened? So I'm going to go back to President Eisenhower. He unintentionally, or he intentionally appoints Earl Warren Chief Justice after some back and forth. But there's a story that folks don't know, most folks don't know, which Mm -hmm. is the first time Brown versus Board of Education was heard, uh, the vote was actually to affirm Plessy v. Ferguson. That's right. The court decides that they're going to have rehearing um, over the summer. They decide they're going to have rehearing in the fall. And uh, over that summer, Chief Justice Benson died. And Felix Frankfurter, they say, remarked, and then I knew there was a God because Earl Warren is appointed and he brings the court together to a 9-0 decision to reverse Plessy v. Ferguson. And then they were off to the races. I mean, the Warren Court was the most progressive court in American history, and it provided us with things like Miranda, like right to counsel, so forth and so on. Um, Loving v. Virginia, as I mentioned, interracial marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, It goes on and on and on. And so uh, Earl Warren decides he's going to retire. And actually, we end up with a period in our history that's really, really quite similar to what happened um, in 2016. The court is actually in the balance, but nobody really recognizes it. They know that Earl Warren is going to step down. There's a good progressive uh, candidate um, who's coming up, and then there's sort of this ultra-regressive right-wing candidate. Everybody does not think Richard Nixon could possibly win, just like people did not think Donald Trump could possibly win, and they do. And as a result, Richard Nixon appoints four people to the court. Donald Trump appointed three, and history is forever changed. Um, starting across the 1970s and 1980s, you gradually see the court turning its back on criminal defendants. Um, by the time you get to the 1980s, the Reagan administration has made a firm commitment to select judges that they believe will overturn Roe versus Wade. We obviously all know that happened last year. So we're seeing the culmination of a decades-long project to reverse all that progress that was made during the Warren Court and the, the stage that we're in now, which is perhaps the scariest stage from my perspective, is they're starting to run out of agenda items, Kevin. Mm, mm. (laughs) They came together to overturn Roe. They've done that. They came together to overturn affirmative action. They've done that. And so then you just start to wonder, well, what positive agenda do they have? Positive not meaning affirmative. I just mean that they've got things that they want to do that aren't just about turning back what the Warren Court did. So Mm -hmm. we may be entering what is... uh, the conservative version of the Warren Court, a court yeah. that they believe, you know, I don't know, re reinstills the founders. Um, vision of society, which, as I like to remind people, nobody wants to live in the 1790s. Not mm-hmm. a single person living today thinks that it would be great to go back to that period of time. I should say there's always some nut, but you get my point. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about that period that we wouldn't say, let's just take what was good about it and keep moving forward. But these folks uh, seem not to recognize the simple logic in that. Yep. See, and, and that's and that's my pushback. I, I think you're wrong about that, respectfully. I think there are folk in this country who would not have a problem going that far back. That's the whole Donald Trump motif. We're going to make, make make America mm-hmm. great again. I mean, when was America ever great in the first place, right? Um, but clearly, it's a return to something in yesteryear. And I don't think um, that we can dismiss those persons who want to take us back to that point, number one. 
so he, I, I'm building on my argument, Rakeem. So here I come, brother. Here I come. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm building on the argument <laughs> I made earlier. Number one, respectfully, I think that's a generous and charitable read on your part, a kind read that there aren't folk. There's nobody in this country who wants to go back to that. I don't believe it. Number one. Number two, I hear your point that they're running out of agenda items. Again, I submit uh, the, the second uh, argument uh, in my in my in my build on. My second argument is simply this. When they run out of agenda items, they start picking stuff. And who better to pick on than black folk? I mean, you, you, you see that. Uh, put, put another way, uh, I say all the time to this audience, and you know this better than I do, Raheem Brooks, given what you do at Alliance for Justice, that the Supreme Court takes on the cases it wants to hear. That point is yeah. always worth underlining. They choose the cases they want to hear. And so there are all kinds of cases that they can choose from when they run out of agenda items. They've done away with Roe v. Wade. They've done away with affirmative action. You ran the list beautifully a moment ago. So then they start looking for stuff. They start looking for stuff they can choose to advance the kind of agenda they want to advance. And I believe that agenda ultimately, as I said earlier, is an agenda that will be antithetical to the best interest of our people, which takes us straight uh-huh. to your to, to your notion. And the piece that I saw you write not long ago, they got my attention, that the fate of our freedom is, in fact, tied to them. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that does all, all make sense. Uh and you listen. Uh, my, my middle name is, um, or my first name, Rakim, actually means the merciful. So you should always <laughs> that, that, I t- that I tend to have a view that you know we we could do better. We yeah. don't. We ought not go down that path. Of, of course, you're totally, you're completely right that um, there are elements in our society who, out of their ignorance, I guess I would say, would thrust us back to the. 1800s they just don't realize how bad things were for exactly. everybody exactly. in fact um uh, and so I, I give them the benefit of the doubt only in the sense that if i think if they knew better they would do better as, as we like to say but you know that's that's likely not true in every person's case yeah uh the reason though we wrote that piece saying that our fate is tied to the present court is for exactly the reasons that you're describing i mean i'll tell you before i took this job I was at the ACLU working on a project called Systemic Equality, and I was—I grew up in public housing. My my ethos is really about economic justice, as I know yours is and a lot of other folks. Mm-hmm. And what I determined was no matter how much we attempted to do on the economic justice front, if the court just – from a legislative perspective, if the court just came back and said Congress doesn't have the authority to do that, they were striking it down as they almost did in the, affirmative, in the uh, Affordable Care Act. Um, case, then what would we be left with? I mean, all of us who fought for the Affordable Care Act so that it would have the Medicaid expansion, as you say, cover our people, and then lost that, right? We say that we won the case, but actually, if you look at the um, aftermath of that, black people were probably the most hurt by the fact that the Medicaid expansion did not go into effect. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I thought you got to work on the courts, right? There is no way of um, succeeding in creating the kind of society that we would like to see leave to our children and our children's children without addressing the court. And what I found was people just really were not alert to what the court was doing in their lives. They're more alert now because, you know, in the aftermath of the Mayor Garland piece and the aftermath of Roe, now in the mm-hmm. aftermath of uh, affirmative action and, you know, folks like you really raising the issue, people are becoming aware that there are these unelected people who seem to constantly interfere in our democratic politics in a way that's radical and unhinged and doesn't seem at all consistent with anything that 
any of us understand about the Constitution. So that's that's really the point that I'm trying to make. You're exactly right that they could thrust us back to something that we don't want to be. I'm actually saying they're in the way of something that we want to be. I take that point, and I I receive that. Um, When we come forward, I want to talk about this issue you raised earlier of the Supreme Court now being an enabler. I I love that word, and I, I like the frame that you create with that word enabler. In the minute and a half I have left, let me offer one more point as I keep building my argument here, <laughs> Raheem Brooks, mm-hmm. and get to respond on this in 90 seconds. Um, I read an article not long ago, we had a conversation about it on this program, that there are more and more courts now uh, reaching back to slavery-era laws that are still on the books to advance very unpopular decisions even in real time. Again, they're going back to slavery-era laws uh, to, to render certain decisions right now. That ain't cute. That ain't cute, Raheem. <laughs> right, right. Well, look, there's a whole uh, a whole show to be hosted on that and something that our organization is actually trying to work on. I I, I think these folks, um, this is, again, me being charitable. Let me actually be less charitable. They are just disrespectful. Mm-hmm. They actually think that it's um, they're just applying the law, right? Somebody said something in the 1830s. I'll, I'll give a quick quote from um, Shelby County. Uh, so folks know that was the case that basically struck down part of the Voting Rights Act they went to um, the, the, the chief justice quotes this concept of equal sovereignty. If you look at the history of American law, you're like, where did that come from? And you find that it came from a man who was a Confederate soldier, one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan, and eventually became the chief justice of the Supreme Court, who was interested in equal sovereignty. Why? Because the southern states had been disempowered. Hold that thought, Raheem Brooks. When we come forward, we'll come uh, to this notion straight away of equal sovereignty and unpack that for you. This is getting good, as we say around here. Raheem Brooks is president of the Alliance for justice. More with him when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Indeed, our guest in this hour is Raheem Brooks. He's the president of Alliance for Justice, and this is a rich conversation uh, about whether or not in this present moment, uh, in late modernity, our freedom, the fate of our freedom is tied to the courts. Um, Raheem suggests that it is. Uh, I, I wouldn't wouldn't argue that. Uh, and for me, at least, that's a scary proposition. I think it is for Rakim as well on some level. Uh, but I'm more scared than he is uh, in this regard. <laughs> uh, and we're, we're unpacking our, our, uh, uh, why we are so frightened, as it were, uh, in this particular hour uh, about the court and the direction that they're taking this country in. My, my thesis, in case you've just tuned in, is that we could end up with a court that is as bad as the court, uh, the Taney court that gave us the Dred Scott decision. Rakim doesn't think it's going to get that bad. Uh, but I think what one thing we both agree on is that given the moment that we're in, it's going to get worse before it gets better, if it gets better. It's going to get worse before it gets better, if it gets better. On that point, Rakim, can I get an amen? Yes. Yes, okay. All right. Uh, okay. We, 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 we agree on that one. All right. Be, be, yep. Before the break, you were breaking down this notion in uh, of, of equal sovereignty for a particular reason. Let me ask you to back that thing up, break it down again and tell I me will. why, why you were referencing it. Yeah, I will. So, you know, Tavis, you had made the point that the courts are often relying on precedent from either the antebellum era, so the slavery era or the Jim Crow era. And I was saying, you're exactly right, and it's a disturbing trend in our law and something that judges really need to think long and hard about. And um, but the reason is simple. It just signals a fundamental disrespect for black people in this country, just as Confederate monuments did. And the mm-hmm. example that I was giving was in the Shelby County case where John Roberts uh, wrote a decision for the court saying that Section 4, which is the preclearance requirement of the Voting Rights Act, just to break that down, a bunch of states had to go to DOJ and say, hey, we're going to do these things to our voting laws before they did them. So John Roberts struck that down. The reason he did so 
okay, let's just say you disagreed with it for any number of reasons. Okay, you know, I'm willing to play that legal game. But he decided to quote this concept of equal sovereignty. And the origin of that concept, this is what I was explaining, actually came from a chief justice in the early 1900s who we know had been a Confederate soldier, had been a member of um, one of the founding members of the Klan in Louisiana, and had praised uh, D.W. Griffith's birth of a nation. Now, of all people to quote, why him? Mm-hmm. Why that case? <laughs> and so when folks like you are rightly skeptical and cynical about what this court can be, uh, you know, I'm just giving you more evidence <laughs> in the direction. <laughs> like, you're, do- you're doing this intentionally. You're a smart man. You know exactly what it is. And um, it, it sort of signals the kind of hubris that some folks have where they just think, you know, I'm just going to sit and do whatever I want. It doesn't matter what you feel. Yeah. But ultimately, these are positions of public trust. They re- reflect um, our public law and our commitments to the Constitution, especially the equality of persons. And so to choose cases and case law that reflects the ugliest moments of our history and treat them as neutral principles is always something that I find um, not just disrespectful, but really disgusting. Let me, let me, let me pick up on that point. Um, clearly, they continue to make decisions, this court does, that disrespect black life and black people. Um, clearly, uh, one cannot point to anything that they've done of late that suggests that black lives matter. But let me take it a step further. I'm not sure that one could make the case that they've done anything of late that suggested that anybody's life matters. Uh, and <laughs> you, you take my point that these decisions have been so they've been so so vicious uh, across the board. Whether you're talking about Na- Native American life, whether you're talking about Black life, uh, the lives of women, the lives of babies. I mean, you could you I mean all kinds of issues uh, one could raise uh, with mm. regard to the decisions that came out of this last term of the U.S. Supreme Court. I raise that to ask. It's as if they are acting and moving in a way with a malign neglect for the concerns, Mm -hmm. the wishes, the views of everyday people. Now, one, I'm not necessarily underlying the word necessarily. I'm not necessarily suggesting that their decisions have to be in line with the majority of the demos, but they've gone completely in the opposite direction, Joaquin. Yeah. Well, again, I think that's mostly right. Uh, I'm going to point out some small caveats just because I can't let you let you leave people thinking (laughs) that nothing is improved. So, I mean, Justice Gorsuch, uh, like his um, the justice for whom he he clerked, Justice Kennedy, has proven to be an outlier in some respects. Mm -hmm. So he ruled in a case called the Bostic case that basically um, transgender people were protected by our civil rights laws. He similarly has been has proven to be the most active advocate for Native American rights in mm-hmm. American history, mm-hmm. all in the insular cases, racist, as just, and Justice Sotomayor jumped right on that. That was basically a case that said that the Constitution didn't follow the flag and was about American imperialism. He was like, that's got to be overturned. He pointed to all of the treaties that the United States has broken with the um, Native Americans and uh, really pushed for them to be reinforced. And so there are opportunities and gaps and places where uh, the conservative justices disagree with one another. But as you say, on issues of race in particular and uh, on the issue of um, the ability to regulate one's own body in the Dobbs case, um, they walked in lockstep in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, I'd only say my only retort. <laughs> uh, I'm running. I'm running. I'm running <laughs> I out of. Got one. Go yeah, ahead, you go know. Ahead. Yeah, you know. You know. I got one. I'm running out of arguments, but I got one. My only retort to your gorgeous point is simply this: that a broken clock is right twice a day, Raheem Brooks. That's all yeah, I'll right. say about that. <laughs> <laughs> that even gorgeous can be. He can be right a couple times a day, but I, I digress on that point. L- let me ask you this question: I've had I've had some phenomenal conversations with my friend. Uh, Ellie Mistal, uh, brilliant justice correspondent mm-hmm. for the Nation magazine, uh, brilliant yeah. author. Love, 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 love Ellie Mistal. We've had some great conversations about this because he, as you know, has written a book about this. And that is the yeah. ways in which the court needs to be fixed, uh, the ways yeah. in which we need to adjust the, 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 the nature uh, of the court, uh, the size of it, the term limits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are a number mm-hmm. of things he's laid out in his book about how we ought to fix the courts. Let me ask a question of you that I haven't even asked of Ellie Mistal. Um, what's in it specifically for black people when it comes to the conversation about how, if in fact we are ever going to fix the courts. And I believe that the chorus of voices is growing in Washington, that the court does need Mm. to be fixed in some ways. So what's specifically in it for black folk in this conversation about how we're going to fix the courts? Yeah. Well, I always say to people, I want you to imagine the fundamental rights that you think you do have or should have. Mm-hmm. I clerked on the Constitutional Court of South Africa, which was an amazing moment for me in my life because mm-hmm. I went to a country that had a history as terrible as ours in many ways with regard to race given apartheid and that chose basically to scrap its constitution and to start all over again mm-hmm. and say, what are the rights that we want for folks? Uh, We in America are not inclined to do that. We like to uh, sort of gradually reinterpret our Constitution over time, adding amendments and so forth. But if you stopped for a second and said, hmm, if this Constitution could do things for me like genuinely protect me from police violence, genuinely entitle me to housing or at least to be free from housing discrimination, genuinely provide me with equal opportunity to not just college but uh, uh, a profession – that I found not just remunerative, but soul-fulfilling, so forth and so on. You just walk down your list. You would find that all that, like in most societies, runs through the fundamental law, the Constitution in one way or another, and that the people who interpret that Constitution have the ability to recognize your rights or not recognize them, Mm -hmm. to see them fulfilled or to see them unfulfilled. And so the reason this is such a crucial conversation for black folks is because for I was telling a friend the other day, the only thing I know about black people is that we've been seeking peace for over 400 years. (laughs) That's what we are after, right? We want peace of mind, peace of soul. Mm -hmm. And I'm just saying we'll never have that unless we have a court that reflects what we know to be the best of humanity. Yeah. Uh, I'm just a black man like Joaquin Brooks seeking peace. That's all a brother wants. <laughs> all a brother wants is peace. Uh, when when we come forward, uh, I, I want to ask Joaquin again this uh, this question about uh, the Supreme Court now being an enabler. Uh, this point he made earlier in our dialogue. We'll talk about the politics of the court and his, his sharing with us uh, his work in South Africa raises a question for me as well that I want to probe. Uh, more with Joaquin Brooks when we come forward on Tavis Smile. Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. 
Joaquin Brooks made a powerful point earlier that I'm that I've been noodling with uh, noodling on since you made it. Um, you're right about the fact that South Africa uh, decided to just rip their constitution up and start all over again. Um, I would that we would do that in this country. But you're also right about the point that because of how might I put it uh, or were it not for interposition and nullification and amendment, uh, we would and protest and we would not be where we are vis-a-vis our own constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you sort of answered this in the way you teed that thing up. But if just imagine with me for a moment, if, in fact, we mm-hmm. could tear this thing up called the U.S. Constitution and do it all over again, put you on the spot here. What three things would you start with when it comes to black folk in particular? What, what would you start with if we were going to tear this thing up and do it all over again in this country? Ooh, that's a heavy question. I'd suggest everybody read Ellie's book. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. While well, you're thinking, yeah, while while you're thinking, I'll tell you what my I'll tell you what my first one is um, to give you. Okay. That's an unfair question to put you on the spot about. Um, but who said I was fair? Uh, that said, um, <laughs> I, I would start with what's been missing in the Constitution from day one: education. I believe mm-hmm. that there ought to be an amendment in our Constitution that guarantees every mm-hmm. child in this country access to, and here's the language, an equal high-quality education. We cannot prejudge outcomes, but every child in this country ought to be guaranteed, at least at the starting line, access to an equal high-quality education. That's missing for black folk in this this Constitution. So there's one. What what two things might you add or might you start with? Yeah. Well, let let me uh, add on to that one, complicate it just a little bit. Okay. You know, the reason I always pause is because um, there are plenty of state constitutions that have a right to education. And what we find is that the education systems are underfunded. I'm thinking about Michigan in particular because there was a case literally challenging the underfunding of Detroit schools. Um, The reason, as I said earlier, I came to this work is because of a case um, called San Antonio School District versus Rodriguez, both about education, but it's actually about poverty. So I start there. Mm-hmm. Um, just like race is a suspect classification, can't discriminate against people on the basis of their race or on their gender and, and sexuality. Uh, I would make poverty a suspect classification. Yes, yes, and in yes. some ways in South Africa, it is. If you look at it and someone um, is poor, it's not a reason both to discriminate against them, deny them certain things. But in addition, it uh, raises for our society the question of why are people poor? Mm-hmm. What's happening here that's that's promoting this? And, you know, conservatives will say it's something about that individual's lack of initiative and so forth. But uh, I think you would get it a lot if you made that suspect classification. I would yeah. keep the First Amendment. You need protest rights in sure. society to resist government, everything else that's in the First Amendment, you know, right to freedom of religion, freedom of conscience and so forth. All those pieces are important. Um, I think the the last piece um, remains a it's not just a right to vote, but it's um, somehow something about both a right to vote and a right to have your vote matter Mm. (laughs) and thinking through how you would construct that, because it's not, you know, plenty of us are casting ballots all over the place and not seeing things improve. And I know in our community, that's a particular frustration. And it's because it's not just the right to vote that matters. It's how that vote fits in within the broader political system. You know, actually, as I say this, there's a guarantee to a Republican form of government in our Constitution, and mm-hmm. the Supreme Court has just read that out completely. Yep. And so maybe that's what some, some folks were after, particularly our forebearers um, in the Reconstruction era, was really thinking about what does it mean to have a government that 
um, supports, protects, uh, and enables yeah. its citizens um, and is in proper relation to them. I'm glad you had that word protects. I was about to say that. Uh, it matters, uh, but it ought to be protected. Uh, and that's uh, that's the key word for me. And so I'm glad you had that. When we come forward in our remaining moments with Raheem Brooks, uh, because I'm just because I feel like messing with him, uh, <laughs> I'll give him a, at least a couple minutes to think about it. I wonder what he would do with the Second Amendment. The thing we keep on fighting about, that the NRA keeps advancing, what would he do about that? How to uh, ensure that into the future, if we were going to start all over again, we wouldn't be debating the Second Amendment. Then we'll close, of course, by talking about how he sees the Supreme Court enabling um, uh, the work of uh, certain politicos in this country. Raheem Brooks right now on Tavis Smiley. Three minutes left. Uh, two questions, Raheem Brooks. I'll start with this. How would you, uh, uh, since we're going to tear this thing up and start all over again, at least in our minds, um, how would you fix this issue that we keep arguing about vis-a-vis the Second Amendment? Uh, that one's actually simple. I want to give the founders some credit. You just read the prefatory clause. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. Now, for folks who are listening, I'm going to just make that simple. When your mama, like my mama said, before you leave this house, comma, <laughs> clean your room, right? Many of us decided we weren't going to clean our room. And therefore, what did that mean? You can't leave the house. The mm-hmm. prefatory clause matters. The Supreme Court has become the only uh, institution that deals with the American, <laughs> with American English that has decided to read out prefatory clauses. The whole preamble, right? Everybody knows that part. We the people, mm-hmm. right? Supreme Court says that has no application to the Constitution. But as I said, for those of us who remember, before you leave this house, yeah. comma, clean your room, you know the prefatory clause matters. We just need to read those phrases back in. I take your point. Love that answer. I close with this. <laughs> uh, you mentioned earlier in this conversation, with two minutes to go, that this Supreme Court has become an enabler. I close by asking who and what are they enabling, to your mind, Raheem Brooks? Yeah, well, for the past uh, two decades, they were really enabling the Republican Party. Of the current justices that sit there, four of them were active members in Bush v. Gore. That's just what folks need to know. Mm -hmm. So if you remember, uh, George Bush narrowly wins. Some people stole the presidential election. And who helped them out? Four of the current four of the justices were his lawyers. One, Clarence Thomas, was sitting on the current court. Justice Alito was off on the Third Circuit. So you have to understand the deep connection between the present court and the Republican Party. Um, but what's happened with Donald Trump, just as he's trying to wrest control of the Republican Party from the establishment, the justices are kind of caught in between. Yes, he appointed three justices of his own, but most of them are still true adherents um, to the old Republican Party. And mm-hmm. so we're kind of seeing a civil war on their side, but they're nevertheless enabling a conservative agenda. And that's sort of the difference between where you and I are. I think they're enabling a very regressive conservative agenda, but not yet a Trumpian agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that could change. Fair enough. Uh, 30 seconds to go. Tell me, uh, given the direction that we're headed, again, you and I may not agree on where this is going to take us or could take us, but but we do agree that we're headed in the wrong direction. Uh, How then, in that regard, do you sustain your hope, given the work that you do at Alliance for Justice? Oh, I love what Sherilyn Eiffel says. There's no point in history where black, where you say, and then black people gave up. Mm-hmm. So you just keep doing the work. You just keep moving forward because if we look at our history, it is a history of progress with setbacks to be sure, with enemies uh, bounding, but ultimately um, one of progress and I think success and hope. And so I'm, I'm, you know, holding close to my forebears in that respect. It's a great quote from uh, uh, Sheridan Eiffel and a great uh, place on which to end this conversation. There is no point in history where you read and then black folk gave up. 
and you never will. Raheem Brooks is the president of the Alliance for Justice, who I've been honored to have on this program. Thanks for your insights, Raheem. We'll do it again, sir. All the best to you. Thank you. Have a good one. You too, my friend. Our two of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Uh, I'm Tavis Smiley, and I'm glad to have you, uh, delighted, in fact, to have you tuned into our program in this hour. And in this hour, a conversation with one of the 21 most influential black folk in technology, according to USA Today, Stacy Spikes. We talk to Stacy in this hour about what happens when power, technology, and race intersect in the entertainment industry. We will talk with him about facing diversity, or adversity, I should say. Adversity, defying stereotypes, and shattering glass ceilings. Uh, he is the founder of Movie Pass, and there's a whole backstory behind that. For those of you who love movies, as I do, he's the founder of Movie Pass, and there's a just a gonna say fascinating. There's a there's a, an interesting story about what happened and how it happened and how it went down and how it came back, and we'll get all that backstory uh, in this hour. If you are a movie fan that you've heard and have used, no doubt Movie Pass at some point. But it's my delight to welcome Stacy Spikes to this program. Stacy, how are you today? Davis, I'm fantastic. It's it's good to have you on. I don't, I don't like the sound of that, Miles. We gotta we gotta get that sound together. Uh, but we'll get the, let me uh, just uh, let Miles talk to Stacy for a second. I could just tell from that opening salvo that ain't gonna work. Uh, as we say around here, that that ain't the answer to the prayer. Uh, let's get that audio right, right quick, and then we can <laughs> jump into this because an hour of that's gonna drive me crazy. Uh, and I got headphones on, so I know it's going to drive you crazy as well. So we'll get that get that straight. But I, as I mentioned, Stacy is the uh, the founder of uh, a movie pass, and there's a fascinating backstory to um, uh, the story about movie pass, which we'll get into in this hour. But once again, uh, let's try this. Stacy, how are you today? Tavis, I'm fantastic. How's that sound better? You sound a lot better, brother. I can I can live with that for the next hour. The other one, uh, was, okay. uh, as I said, was not the answer to the prayer. Uh, but <laughs> let me let let me, let me start with this. Um, I, I was, uh, I, I am, I am, uh, uh, delighted, was delighted when I saw you on this list of the 21 most influential black folk in all of technology, according to USA Today. And my mind went to, I've been on a number of these lists over the course of my career. Uh, at one point I was on the cover of Ebony and they do this. I mean, Ebony, uh, Ebony as well, but at one point on the cover of uh, time magazine, time magazine, every, every mm. 10, every 10 to 20 years, time magazine does a cover called 30 for the future. And they do it every 10 or 20 years because they're trying to make it generational. And if you're fortunate, you end up being one of the 30 people in this entire country who are featured on the cover of Time magazine as one of the future thinkers, leaders, public intellectuals, et cetera, et cetera, in, in the country. I made that list some years ago. And I remember when I made the cover, I was excited on the one hand. Then I was thinking, uh, no pressure here, Tavis, no pressure. Uh, Time magazine says you are a you're one for the future. Uh, and so I look at the I look at the persons on the, I looked at the persons on that list. And every now and then uh, I think about who the other 29 were. And I, I, I kind of see how they're doing and how my life and career have gone. But it did put some pressure on me when you're on these lists. Uh, and, and in your case, one of the 21 most influential black folk in technology, that puts a little pressure on you, Stacey Spikes, does it not? Yeah, definitely it does. But, you know, at the end of the day, you still know that you're blessed and honored to be featured. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I think that that's the, the, the best way to look at it. And you say, well, you know what? They like me. They're putting me up here. Let me now show up and see what I can do to hold up to that that name yeah to, to, to that to that end what have you learned these some some some, you know, some broad questions here and we'll, we'll we'll jump mm. we'll jump from here um but before we get too deep into the conversation what have in fact you learned about how to navigate how to deal with pressure 
You know, I, I love that I can say this and get real on your show because I have learned that prayer is very, very, very important and keep the right perspective. You know, a lot of people before me never got a chance to play in this arena. They, you know, from grandparents to great-grandparents who clean houses and couldn't go to college and couldn't do things. So when I think about pressure, I think they had pressure and they had ways they couldn't go up. They fought long and hard for me to be able to have this opportunity. And in some ways, I'm like, okay, well, that's not pressure. I just need to show up and do what they taught me to do. Yeah. Well, I received that. Um, just getting started in this conversation with Stacy Spikes, uh, one of the 21 most influential black folk in all of technology, according to USA Today. So I'm delighted to have you on this program. He is the entrepreneur, uh, watering entrepreneur, and founder of MoviePass. There's a great story behind that. Uh, but again, just getting started, a great deal more to unpack with Stacy Spikes when we come forward on Tavis Smiley.